Howdy, howdy, howdy. What's going on, guys? So, are you curious about the skyrocketing home prices, impact of institutional buyers, and the future of affordable housing? Well, today we're going to uncover the secrets of the housing market crisis. By the end of this episode, we're going to answer the following questions for you How are we going to stabilize this housing market? How did we get here? What policies can make homes more affordable? And how can realtors advocate for change? Plus, some hopefully some actionable steps for you to promote home ownership yourself, whether you're a homeowner, first time home buyer, or real estate enthusiast. This episode promises to shed a lot of light on the path to a brighter future in housing. So, welcome to the Texas Real Estate and Finance Podcast, where we break down the complexities of the housing market and the financial world to empower you with knowledge. I'm your host, Mike Mills, and I've spent years navigating the intricacies of mortgage and finance. My, my mission is very simple to bring you insightful conversations with experts and thought leaders in the field, tackling the most pressing questions about home ownership, real estate, and personal finance. With each episode, I aim to demystify the industry, provide actionable advice, and help you make more informed decisions on your journey to financial success and the dream of owning a piece of this earth. So whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out your financial journey, join me as we explore the world of real estate and finance together. So let's get ready to dive into this sucker. But before we do um, get into today's a little bit controversial topic, a quick reminder for our listeners, if you find the value in, our, in, in these discussions, please don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your podcast platform or check out my YouTube channel at Mike Mills uh, Mortgage and Finance for more content. Subscribing ensures that you never miss out on expert insights that we bring you every single week. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it is an honor to have with us today a true advocate for home ownership and a prominent figure in the world of housing policy. Our guest, Michelle Young, is a senior advisor at America's Homeowner Alliance, and she's been fighting the good fight for current and future homeowners of America for 17 years. Michelle's extensive experience in housing policy at all levels of government have provided her with invaluable insight into the challenges and opportunities facing homeowners or prospective buyers. She's a passionate advocate for making home ownership more attainable for all. And today she's here to share all of that wisdom with us. Just as we delve into the um, join us as we delve into the pressing issues of the housing market, skyrocketing home prices, and the path to affordable home ownership. Michelle, please welcome to the show. How are we Thank doing? You. I'm great. Thank you very much for having me. You got it. My pleasure. So um uh let's let's start here. I want to know a little bit about the um, the advocacy group that you're working with um, to get an idea of how you got involved with them, what y'all's role is in the community right now, and what you're kind of doing to um, you know promote affordable housing in the United States. Sure, I would love to share that with you. So uh, I am a senior advisor with America's Homeowner Alliance. America's Homeowner Alliance is the only consumer advocacy group of its kind currently that is dedicated to uh, promoting sustainable, responsible home ownership. And, um, you know, let me tell you, like, informally how this thing got started and, and you know, who's who's really behind this group. It's, it's really interesting. Um, the group was started 17 years ago by an industry veteran by the name um, of Philip Bracken. And Phil Bracken is our, our chairman and founder, co-founder, along with um, another gentleman who you, you might recognize his name, um, Tino Diaz. And uh, Tino's been uh, very, very uh, prolific with the National Association of Hispanic Real Estate Professionals. Uh, he is a former chairman um, of that group as well. So um, I met these guys separately before, prior to the first financial crisis. So I was an um, account executive with uh, City Mortgage and I was managing the number one and two fraud markets in the country. I was actually at a 22 state, $4 billion um, closed end second correspondent territory. So I was buying 100% um, CLTV closed end seconds um, for handles of like 104, 105, 106 prior to the first crisis. It was pretty obvious at that point in time that things were, you know, were, were not going in the right direction. I was extremely fearful um, for, you know, what was going to happen to the industry and, and globally and happened to meet um, both Phil and Tino around that time separately. Um, Tino was managing a mortgage company in South Miami. He was one of my clients and he had the distinction of holding uh, the highest, um, 
loan performance in the country um, with all of the loans that were being sold to Fannie Mae at that time, which was incredible coming out of a South um, Florida mortgage company just prior to the first crisis um, in the number two fraud market in the country. Yeah. Yeah. And then Phil, I met in the airport and literally at that point in time, he was like, hey, you know, it was a, it was a PowerPoint deck and an idea. And mm -hmm. Uh, there was an endowment that was made by Radian um, at the time. Uh, oh, the uh, the uh, MI company, Radian. Right. Okay. So, um, Teresa Bryce Bazemore um, and the executive team at Radian at that time made a very gener generous endowment. Um, and America's Homeowner Alliance was formed. Um, Phil and a number of other very notable, again, um, industry veterans. We have... Uh, we have some really good guys on our board. Ted Tozer, five-time Jenny May president. Um, Ted Tozer sits on our board. Paul Mullins, a whole number of, of executives and individuals who have been in the housing finance market for multi multiple decades and have seen, you know, multiple cycles. Right. And so, you know, Phil and Tino really started this um, as a, as a vehicle and a mechanism to provide balance to some of the industry trade groups that were already in the space. There was nobody that was really specifically representing the voice of the consumer. Right. Um, everybody else that was prolific in the space was um, organizations that we're all familiar with, such as NAR and the NAHB and the MBA, but nobody was specifically there to represent the consumers of America, um, both current homeowners and prospective. So, that was um, how the organization was formed. And as you mentioned, I've been with them now for over 15 years serving as an advisor. Long time. Yeah. You've been, been fighting the good fight for a while. Yeah. So what do you think, you know, at least in the market that we're in right now, like what do you think are the biggest contributing factors to why we've seen home prices just skyrocket over the last couple of years? And, you know, I read something yesterday um, that when you go back and you take inflation out, that in the last 10 years, it's gone up like 80%, which it just seems mind boggling to some extent to think that that prices have gone up that much in real dollars. You know, what would have been the primary contributing factors as to why this has occurred? Well, um, I think that's probably best answered by uh, letting you know what the top three priorities for America's homeowner alliance are uh, for the country. And that is um, in rank order although you could argue that they all should be number one, um, inventory rates and credit. Right. To, you know, and specifically credit distribution um, in this country. And I think the thing that's really dominating the majority of our discussions at AHA currently um, is inventory. We really think um, much of what we're seeing comes down to supply. Um, and I think there was a lot of reasons. Um, you know, for uh, why we are where we are. Um, certainly go back to um, the loss and the degradation in single family um, building that we saw um, occur over, you know, the, the last 10 years. I mean, we just, we're, we're behind from a housing unit inventory perspective. We're way behind in units and we're facing a, a massive shortage coming up. Yeah, we're, it seems like we're seeing, you know, I, I saw a graph the other day where they were showing uh, new new single family residence starts and they were leading into 2008. They had been on a really steadily incline up where there were a lot of homes that were being started and completed. And then when the crash occurred in 2008, you see that number drop dramatically uh, because builders, obviously, at that point, they got scared, you know, OK, what's going to happen here? We don't know what the market's going to bear out over the next several years. So we're going to slow our building down, not to mention, I think a lot of builders just got completely out of the market in general, which consolidated things and made it a little bit smaller. But the cost of homes has been been higher to build or, it, you know, the cost to build has been you know much greater in a lot of areas. And I think there's a lot of things that factor into why that's happened. But um, but overall, we've seen so few such a fewer amount of housing starts compared to um, to uh, family or, or household growth. Right. You know, you have I think the they say the uh, millennials are even I don't think people realize that millennial the generation of millennials is bigger and more people than the baby boomers. You know, there's more households that are being formed in the millennial area right now than there than there were during the baby boom era. So now we have all these households coming together and you see these narratives out there about how 
oh, well, you know, millennials and Gen Z, they don't really want to live in homes. They want to live in apartments and they want to have freedom and travel. They want to rent because they want to have flexibility. And my argument to that is like, okay, maybe, but once they have kids and they have a family that changes the entire dynamic and they want the single family residence. But now all we see is we see apartments going up all over the places. We see multi-unit, you know, developments happening, townhomes, condos, all that kind of stuff is through the roof, but single family is still down. So, so why is that? Well, I think, um, if you, um, if you take a look at what is going into the average um, costs in terms of regulatory costs, the NAHB was last reporting. I believe the number I last saw, and this was at the end of the year, so it could actually be greater um, at this point in time. But the NAHB was uh, reporting eighty-six to ninety-four thousand dollars embedded in each single-family home build of regulatory costs. Really. Yeah. Wow. 86 to 94,000. I think if you go back to um, YouTube, uh, the, the December chairman um, spoke and that was the number that he that is embedded in his presentation. So um, I, I can't tell you what's in the 86 to 94,000 um, in terms of itemization. I know the NAHB is, is you know, well aware of what's in that number. But, you know, when we talk about affordable housing and we talk about pricing that's 350000 and below, and you now have an understanding that builders have an eighty six dollars to $94,000 spread that they have to cover on that, that's why there aren't, uh, that, that is at least a significant driver for why you see less um, single family homes in the affordable price range being built because there's no margin. In it. Yeah, you couldn't even build. I bought my first house in 2004, which I mean, I guess it's 20 years ago. It doesn't seem like that long ago, but time goes fast. But um, I bought it in 2004 and I paid $130,000 for it. And it was in a nice neighborhood. It was a 1700 square foot property, um, good schools, the whole thing. And um, and I paid 130 grand for it. And this was 20 years ago. And now you, what you're saying is that you couldn't even get a hundred and fifty or one hundred and eighty thousand house dollar house built because eighty to ninety grand of it is already baked into the regulatory cost. So, what are those regulatory costs? Like, what are builders having to pay? Is it zoning? Is it licensing? Like, what what all is be, having to be paid out? Um, I again, I don't have the itemization on that, so I wouldn't want to run through that. I, I think I would disadvantage the NAHB by doing that. They have clearly have some really good research on that. But I think what we've seen is, um, at least in the marketplace, from a, um, a permitting perspective, we're starting to see issues there. Yeah. So, um, I, I mean, I can comment on that just in terms of, you know, observation in the marketplace. Right. Just anecdotal stuff that you've seen on, on what it's costing to get permits done. Absolutely. But, you know, this is all part of the larger affordability discussion around consumers. So if we look at you know, you're talking about affordability and if you're talking about $350,000, you know, homes, you've got 86 to $94,000 on average going into each build now that from a construction perspective. Yeah. And we have 12000 plus in manufacturing costs or wherever we're sitting today. I don't even know what the real number is. Maybe you do. But last I heard it was like $12,700 and it may be even more than that to manufacture alone. Yeah. So, you know, we have borrowers, you know, we have consumers coming to the table with a hundred grand of, of just nothing of just covering the spread. That's just table stakes to just, you know, to have a seat at the table. Well, and it's terrible because, you know, our economy is built on incentives. I mean, that's what a free market economy is built on. You have incentives to grow and to, you know, develop and where do you, how do you put out the rules in order to make the incentives as such to where you get the desired result. And now we're talking about a situation where you're literally de-incentivizing builders to build affordable housing because the amount of cost that you're building into just not even breaking ground, just to get the permission essentially to build is so prohibitive that it doesn't even make sense for a builder to go in there and build anything less than 300, 350 or 400, because then there's no profit in it. So if you're running a business and you're building homes and that is your job, well, you know, you're not, nobody's building homes for free. You know, we're not trying to create homes that, you know, if, if I'm going to put my time and effort into doing it, I would like to be, you know, compensated to some extent. 
So if that's the case, then I'm going to pick a price point that's going to at least have some profit built into it so I can be sure that my business thrives. Otherwise, it's not going to last for very long. And so why in the world would I want to build a $200,000 house? Because between the cost of the dirt, the regulatory requirements, and then all of the, you know, especially with the escalating building costs, there's just no, there's no margin. So the, the only answer to that question is to start, you know, to get into the McMansions, you know, you're building the four or five, what's these days, a $400,000 house didn't even qualify for that. But you know, you're starting to build these higher tier homes, which is why when you're driving down the freeway and you're seeing the Lennar builders or you're seeing DR Horton or whatever, it'll say homes starting at 300. Well, it might be starting at 300, but once you build in all the necessities of the package you have to put together, you're sitting at 400 really, really quickly. And and that's why our average, you know, home prices, these are the median home prices these days is like, I think it's up to almost $400,000, right? I, you're right. I, so in terms of number one for the country is, you know, as I said, inventory, and I think supply um, is, is, is paramount to that. And one of the other things that I think from a consumer perspective, we need to fix, and I posted about this this morning on LinkedIn, is the concentration of institutional investors um, in the space. Yep. And I mean, the good news is, hey, there's, for, for realtors, and, and other housing finance professionals, there is still a, a 60 to 70% of the market that's remaining out there. And there are consumers that need to be served. And I don't want to lose sight of that when we start to talk about, you know, the, the components of the um, industry that have, um, have left us, whether that's permanently or temporarily, I, I don't really know at this point in time. So I don't want to lose sight of the fact that it is so important that we, you know, we maintain focus on the home ownership, home ownership opportunities that we do have in this country, and we we are reminded to serve those consumers. But for all of the, you know, the the thirty three percent of our marketplace that is left and is projected to be forty percent um, next year, um, which has been, you know, taken over by single family rent to own and institutional investment, um, you know, markets. Um, I think we have to find a way to effectively work with those partners and deal with that um, because we have a large portion of our, our inventory and our stock that's tied up um, in rental. And um, at some point in time, I think we'll, we'll need to look at how we're going to effectively convert that. Do you know if there's a lot of delineation? Because I get I, I feel the same way that you do. I think institutional buyers have caused a major issue. And, and right now, at this moment in time, it isn't quite as impactful as it has been for the previous probably five years, I would say. But um, do you know when when these studies and different you know readings of percentages on on how much is actually being purchased and what they're doing in different markets? Because you know I get conflicting information. I don't know if you guys have done enough diving into it, but the difference between an institutional buyer and like the mom and pop investor, right? Because sometimes when you're, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a homeowner and I decide I want to be, get into the rental game a little bit, I might own four or five properties and I buy it with my LLC or, or I buy it in my own personal name and transfer, transfer it to the LLC or whatever the case may be. Do you know if there's a, if there's a good way to differentiate between that? So we know actually how much is the true institutionals, the I buyers, the big boys out there versus the mom and pops? I don't have that data. And I think that's a great question. I wonder if urban does. Um, it would be, I think really difficult to extrapolate um, just because I think you'd have to, you'd have to get down to a pretty local level yeah. to understand, you know, yeah. and then to your point, there's so many shell companies and LLCs. So you don't really know a lot of times you think you're looking at um, regional and local institutional buyers, but it's really just a name that is rolling up to Blackstone or BlackRock or, you yep. know, one of the larger, you know, players. I think when we really start talking about, you know, disruption in the marketplace, I, for me personally, I'm less concerned with mom and pop investors and institute, you know, and small regional institutional investors. That's not really what, what I'm referring to when I talk about the, uh, what I characterize as almost violent disruption to the industry. You know, mom and pop didn't come in here and and, and uh, overnight grab forty percent of the housing finance market. Okay, that it doesn't work that way. Yeah. As powerful as the U.S. consumer is, and as much as I want them to be that powerful, it, it doesn't work that way. We know we know how that happens. A behemoth like a BlackRock who owns one sixth of all the real estate on the entire globe right now. Let me point that out. 
Yep. One sixth of all all of the real estate on the entire globe. I can hardly say it with a straight face. <laughs> Truly. <That's insane. laughs> you know. We're talking. I'm talking about these um, these participants in the ecosystem. Yeah. I'm, you know, and I I wish I had better data because I I can share with you in um, 2019 St. Louis was the number one flipper market in the country. 18.8 percent of all of the purchases were um, were flipped, and I I don't see um, a tremendous uh, a great deal of evidence here of a big um, Blackstone presence but I could be mistaken. So, well, they come in many different forms. That's the, that's the problem is you don't really know because I mean, I mean, look, when you just look at the system of how other industries have progressed, okay, just, just what's happened with our food, what's happened with our communications, what's happened with our television networks, what's happened with the cars. I mean, we're in a place where we're running out of things that people actually own. Okay. We're, those things are starting to decline because I always use this example. Whenever I talk to people about this, I don't need a ton of information just to be able to see where things have gone in the past and where they're going to go in the future, because just take a look at media. Media is a good example. Okay. Used to, you had, um, you know, these regional, I mean, media is in like news store, news outlets and media is in, uh, radio or excuse me, um, music, television, all this kind of stuff. Right used to, we used to drive around in our cars and, you know, I'm 45. I'm not sure how old you are, but you know, back in, back in my day. Yeah. Um, we used to drive around with these big foldable CD, you know, you had 8 million CDs in this big thing, or, or yeah. even go back further. You had your tape deck or whatever the case may be. Right. And you would drive in your car and you'd have to get whether you had the changer or you put the CD or the tape in and you would listen well, that was something that you went to the store and you purchased with your money and it was 20 bucks or 10 bucks or whatever the cost was back then. And now you own that. It was yours. Okay. You, my very first CD was Garth Brooks rope in the wind. Okay. I'm, I'm in Texas. So, you know, country music is a little bit of a player down here, but, um, but you take that CD and now you own it. Right. Well, fast forward to today and my kids, I have a 16-year-old and a 14-year-old. They own zero media. They have no music. They have no DVDs. They have no anything because now we subscribe to YouTube We or, excuse me, Spotify, Apple, Netflix, whatever, and now it's a monthly subscription. You pay by the month to get access to the catalog of information. You don't own any of that. You have no ownership of it whatsoever. Even a lot of the artists barely own most of what they produce. It's, it's, it is given to you on a monthly subscription, just like we're very quickly heading in the direction. And if, you know, I know the numbers grow every year on people that own their cars, you know, used to, you would go to the dealership, you'd pay $20,000 for this car at the dealership and now you owned it. And then it went to, okay, well now the car prices have gone up. Now we're getting into payments. You're going to have to pay, but you're going to own it in three or five years or whatever. Now we're at a place where like, Hey, I know the payments get really ex expensive on this $100,000 car that we have now, but if you want to keep your payments less, we have another option for you. It's called leasing. So now you have this car, but you don't really own it. You just pay the dealership on a monthly basis for the right to drive it around. Okay. Well, this has already existed because we have renting in real estate. It's been around for a very long time, but now because we've lost the car ownership, we've lost our media ownership. You know, we're getting to a place where now private companies are owning water sources, which is frightening in and of itself. All of these things are happening and it's happening to housing. We are starting to commodify housing to where it's, it's a, it's a, it's a place where you, on a monthly basis, you're going to pay some conglomerate to, for the right to live in their home. And if your water breaks too bad, fix it. If you don't like the neighborhood too bad, go rent somewhere else where it's going to be just as expensive. And the, the idea of owning your home, it's like, we're trying to filter it out and it is, it's terrifying to me. And I don't need to know that, you know, 40% of, I, I live in Texas in Tarrant County. Um, and there was an article in the Dallas morning news that came out a couple, six or eight months ago that said in 2020 or excuse me, 2021, 50% of the homes purchased in Tarrant County were purchased by non-individuals, essentially LLCs, institutional buyers, whatever, 50% of the homes that year. So it's, it's terrifying to me that that's where we're headed. I, I would agree. And 
you know, going back to um, inventory and affordability, because I, you know, I, I outlined that there were three. So inventory kind of affordability goes with inventory, in my opinion. Number two is rates. I, I don't personally spend a lot of time talking about rates, even though yesterday the NAHB, the MBA and NAR issued um, a letter to the Fed uh, asking for. Um, I saw that. Yes. Mercy, basically. Yeah, They're like, please stop, please stop. <laughs> basically asking for mercy. Yes. Um, which, you know, I I understand that and I respect the need for that. But on behalf of American consumers, I think we would have liked to have seen um, the ask be a little bit more stimulative. Yeah. Um, and um, well, the reality I, with rates and housing is that, and I've used this before too, is that you know, the old school realtors will tell me, oh, I sold houses in 1983 and interest rates were 18 and a half percent and people still bought homes. That's true. But the average price of a home was $70,000 in 1983. Okay. Yeah. So 18% on 70 grand isn't too bad. It's not great, but it's not too bad. 7% or 8% where we're at now on 400,000 is a whole other ballgame. Agreed. I, I agree. There's there the affordability component is a big one. When, you know, when entering these discussions, you can't just have them. That's why I don't necessarily like to participate, and we don't spend a lot of time at America's Homeowner Alliance on rates per se. Yeah. Um, but we haven't needed to because we haven't been in you know we haven't been in this epic you know cr crisis situation um, that we are today. But again. I think the policies that we would like to see um, would be a little bit more um, constructive. It wouldn't just be like, please, you know, it, I don't think we, I think when we write our letter, we're, we're going to ask for a little bit more. That's well, you're going to probably offer some ideas on solutions rather than just say, please help us stop doing what you're doing, right? We're, we're going to try to do that. Um, the, the third piece is credit distribution. And I think that that's equally as important too. And I was, um, when Phil outlined um, the the top three, you know, priorities for America's Homeowner Alliance this year, initially I was surprised to see credit hit hit number three. But now um, I'm in 100% agreement, uh, especially with what we see going on with uh, the buy merge, try merge discussion. So um, I think that that's really important. But probably paramount to two and three is still number one. And it's, it's just going back to um, inventory and supply. And I think, you know, there's there's a lot going on right now. So we, we need to get in front of the regulatory cost issues that are embedded in single family housing. In my opinion, we need to get in front of that very, very quickly and unwind that. Because I don't see that there's any way out of this multifamily, you know, kind of spin that we're in until we peel back some of those regulatory costs that are embedded in those single family builds. And we bring those builds back in, in line with some affordability. And I'm a taxpayer and I'm also been in housing finance long enough to know that whatever's in that 86 to 94 can be negotiated. Okay. Yeah. I don't know what's in there, but I'd really like to know what's in there. Well, I would imagine a lot of it happens at the state and local level too, as not as much on a federal level um, as far as like what can be done because, um, you know, real estate in and of itself is an extremely local industry. I mean, it, you can't, you know, when you, when you see American housing numbers and average prices and, you know, default rates and all that kind of stuff, it's very hard to take, you know, a, a big U.S. number and, and, and be able to associate it to your market because every market is extremely different. You know, the, the California market right now is suffering worse than anybody else for numerous reasons um, versus, you know, where I'm at in Texas, where, you know, companies are coming in, people are coming in, you know, even with high rates, we're still selling homes, you know, at a, a great clip, but a decent clip. It's, it's still happening um, because people still have to move. They have to move for jobs. They have to move for, um, you know, growing families, all that kind of stuff. They don't have a choice and they can't pick the market in which they decide to move because it is what it is. And so when you have a need, you're still going to have demand for it. It's going to continue and you're not going to see the prices come down. I mean, it's basic economics, right? It's, it's economics 101, supply and demand. If you have a, still have a high demand, even with higher rates and the supply is extremely low, which it has been since 2011, we haven't exceeded. And I, there are some numbers out there that say months of supply are up, you know, 
you know, you see six and seven months. I don't in, in certain markets. I think that that's the case, but as a whole, especially where I'm at, I don't buy that because a lot of that is included in new builds. So you see a lot of new builds that aren't actually ready to be moved into, and they won't be ready to be moved into for 12 to 18 months until it's complete. And so that house isn't really available. I mean, it's there, you can purchase it, but you can't move in, which means you can't sell your house that you were moving out of. So when you factor out those numbers, the months of supply shrinks dramatically. And um, the market that's doing well right now is new builds because there's the pre-owned homes are not coming up for sale because if you have a 2% or 3% interest rate and you don't have to move, then you're probably not going to move and you're going to sit put or stay put until the rates at least get into a more reasonable range into that maybe five or six or something like that. And then the desire can, can kick up then. But if you don't have the supply of homes available and the demand is still high, even with the rates, you're not going to see these prices come down. Even if, I mean, I think it's going to take, and I want your opinion on this. I mean, what has to shift in order for us to get more supply? I mean, foreclosures are the lowest they've ever been. Uh, the the foreclosure rates at, you know, at or below zero or 1%. And it's been that way for a long time. So unless the market takes a significant turn in the other direction, um, which isn't out of the realm of possibilities, you know, the economy's not doing as good as maybe people believe it is. Um, but unless that happens, people aren't selling their homes, builders aren't building them. Where does the supply come from? So, so we have to build. I mean, that's it, what it comes down to. And we have to build in the affordable um, in the affordable sector. Going into 2032, the Urban um, Institute has projected that we have a three to seven million house shortage, unit shortage. Yeah. And that's not people. We know housing is not a one-to-one. We know that housing is a one-to-many. And um, with the uh, population projections that the Urban Institute is making, much of that is um, immigration related. And we know that a lot of the immigration um, related housing needs are multi-generational. So when we start to talk about having a shortage of, let's just call it in the middle, 5 million units of housing, we know that can be 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 million, you know, people that are going to be homeless. Yeah. And we know that, that and we know with immigration surges that much of these needs are going to be in the affordable category. Right. So the only way to be able to meet those needs is to be able to construct and build affordable supply. And in my opinion, you know, you asked the question and at America's Homeowner Alliance, what we're attempting to do is to put together um, an inventory coalition. Mm-hmm. And that really needs to um, include labor and construction. There are things that I feel that we don't talk enough about in housing finance. And one of them is the, um, you know, the, the partnership and the dependency that we have on our friends at the NAHB and within the skilled trades and labor unions. So we've got to do a better job, in my opinion, of helping these guys stand up the, the supply we need. So first of all, support them in being able to strip out the 86 to $94,000, you know, worth of regulatory costs that are going into these affordable builds. And then do what we need to do on our side of the fence to take care of the $13,000 in manufacturing costs that we have, um, you know, that are going into loan manufacturing. So those two things need to happen. We also need to um, understand what the impact is on the regional community banking center right now. We've seen a massive amount of um, depository flight from the regional community banks. And what a lot of people don't realize is that that's the source of financing for most of our uh, regional and local builders. Yep. Um, so it's very, very important that we keep distributed risk within the retail banking sector so that it helps keep a healthy um, construction sector. I sound like I know what I'm talking about. I literally have just started reading. Like, I, I want to let, let you know that both the NAHB um, and the NAIC have extensive extensive white papers available on their websites um, about um, housing finance um, reformation. They have very, very, very um, well articulated uh, points of view on how the U.S. housing system should work. They 
employ some very, very bright economists. So I spent the last winter really pouring through these white papers. Mm -hmm. And that's when I really arrived at the conclusion that we were missing, you know, half of our partnership um, yeah. in housing finance. And, you know, just to take that a step further, when you look at, at labor and you look at um, specifically skilled labor, you know, we have a massive, massive shortage. We have electricians that are like literally in five years, there's not going to be a, a skilled electrician left to, to train anyone. Yep. Um, I think, you know, you and I had a discussion before the show. I've been always, you know, been um, held myself a very, um, you know, very proudly as a fiscal conservative. And labor unions have never been a part of necessarily of my um, narrative. And I have become so intrigued and so interested in how do we partner with, you know, with labor and with the unions. Um, I, in my opinion, it's all hands on deck. When you're talking about a five to seven million household unit shortage. Yeah. I've been homeless. I don't know if, if your guests are aware of that. I was homeless as a teen. And I recently wrote a book um, that I'm working on um, publishing, uh, having published. Um, it's really my story of um, homelessness to housing. So um, I spent a number of years um, homeless. It's not fun. It's, yeah. it's really, it's a horrible existence. And right now we are manufacturing homeless in this country. We know we have a shortage of five to seven million units. There should be a coalition in this country that is already active, that is being led by either one of the large labor unions or one of the large constructors. We should have a national coalition and we should have focus on this. So, so two things there. So I didn't even consider the regional bank aspect of it because what we hear, you know, cause I spend a lot of time reading financial news and, you know, so I at least have some idea of what I'm talking about sometimes, but, um, there's a lot of focus on the regional bank issue with commercial real estate because a lot of commercial, uh, investors typically get lending and whatnot through the regional banks. When so when you had the SVB collapse and you had these other, you know, regional banks that were having issues that the fed basically had to come in and bail out and then chase got to buy them up at a discounted price, which is a whole other thing. But, um, when that occurred, there was a lot of focus on, okay, how is this going to impact commercial real estate? How is this going to impact funding for that type of thing? And it still is a, is a big concern because the regional banks are, are struggling right now. But I didn't even consider the fact that your, your small to medium builders who, who are a big part of the building community for these single family residences also get their funding from those small banks. You know, I think of it in terms of how does the buyer get the funding to buy the house? They go through bankers like myself or, you know, anybody else that they can use. But I didn't consider or think about the builder itself and where the funding for those comes from, because it does come from those regional banks as well. So if you start to see a stress on that market and people, because I think that's where people get confused on or get lost in the minutia on if I'm a regional bank and let's say I've got five, you know, I don't even know the average, but let's just say I've got $5 million in deposits. I'm sure it's more than that. Um, I have a percentage of that that I can actually lend out. So I, I, because of the FDIC rules, I can't lend out over a certain percentage of that money that I hold in deposits because I have to make sure I can, you know, if there's a run on my bank, I have money to give out. Well, if I lose deposits because people fear that my bank is going to collapse and they go stick all their money with Chase or Bank of America or whoever because they're bigger and, and, and have less risk involved yeah. with them, then that limits how much money I can then lend out to anybody small businesses, small home builders, anybody that I'm, I'm now limited, which is why if you go to chase and you put your money in a savings account there, they're going to pay you zero for it right now. But if you go to small regional bank, you know, in midtown America, they're going to give you 5% interest on putting your money in their bank because they're trying to encourage more people to put deposits so they can lend out money. Well, if that market shrinks, then the, the, the market for building is even smaller, you know, on, on who can build homes. And then, because this is the way I work is I I'm a conspiratorial brain type of person, <laughs> good or bad. You know, I can usually see both sides of it, but I always think there's somebody up there up to no good. And we are entering a place where, you know, we like to be told it's it's Republican and Democrat and red and blue, and you're on this team and you're on that team. And we don't like each other for these reasons and blah, blah, blah. But what it's really turning into is, or it has been for a long time, whether we realize it or not, is a have and a have not, right? 
who has the money and power and control and who doesn't. And whether you're on the blue team or the red team, I tell people all the time, none of those people up there that have all the wealth and influence are advocating on your behalf. Okay. They're not, they're not fighting for you or there are very, very few that are. So I'm curious your opinion. How much do you think of this stuff where you have limited, you know, uh, uh, coalitions of people that can get involved from labor movements and whatnot, but you have a lot of pressure from the upside, you know, from the top end, pushing down, you know, putting more regulatory requirements on it because it does benefit the bigger builders. It does benefit the larger companies because it pushes the little guy out. Do you feel like in some cases there are, I don't want to say coordinated, but you know, is it just a, is it just a, this function of the system being broken on how it's all put together? Or is there the black rocks of the world that are really like, all right, we're going to create this rule. We're going to write this legislation. We're going to get this passed because in 10 years, this is what this market's going to look like. So my personal opinion, having been in this industry for 35 years and worked for a number of private equity firms and made a lot of money for them and made a lot of money um, working for them is of course, of course, there's a systemic effort to do that. It, it's it's the profitable play. It is the most profitable play, and these are not not for profit organizations. And I don't think we need to you know vilify them as such. I mean, um, I've been very very vocal about the fact that I have benefited um, personally and tremendously by you know private equity. Having said that, um, I can't deny the the violent disruption in nature that they have brought to the housing ecosystem. And, you know, to kind of take this answer, uh, you know, one step further is um, I write about this and I talk about it a lot and it doesn't seem very consumer focused, but really to to be a consumer advocate in housing finance, my personal opinion is, is that you have to respect the, the fact that housing finance is very much an ecosystem that's been constructed on distributed risk for a reason. So when you upset that balance, much like the example that you're giving within the banking sector, anytime you come in too heavy on one side or another, and we know we disrupt that risk equation, we know that there can be catastrophic you know, consequences associated with that. We've already lived through a couple of you know, bank crises and financial crises and mortgage crises. Maybe living through one right now coming up. Right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, absolutely. There's a concerted effort. And Again, you know, you the average consumer doesn't understand what we were just discussing, the fragility of the housing finance sector and the fact that we are all codependent on one another here. Yeah. We truly are. And the builders are dependent upon the deposits of the regional banks. This is why we, we need our regional banks. Here's the other reason, guys. They're they're the distribution for rural America. Okay. Not every there. Uh, there's a big section of this country that doesn't that isn't located on either one of the coasts. Right. And regional banks and the loan officers and credit unions are a big part of building our communities in terms of being able to you know to bring exposure to to, to products. I don't want to say education because I know a lot of people don't appreciate that word. So we'll just call it exposure. You know, on the job training learning to be a homeowner and, and, and a savvy holder of generational wealth, whatever you want to call it. But these guys are important to distribution, not just for um, builders, but also for the rest of us and for consumers. Yeah. Well, do you think that, it, okay, so getting on, since we're on this topic, I was going to bring it up towards the end, but have you seen the, um, the recent, or are you paying attention to the recent lawsuits that are going on with NAR and, and Remax and Keller Williams and the class action suits there? Have you seen I, much have, of that? I have not. And, um, I will be really honest with you because I, I don't feel that I'm able to, uh, get a lot of traction on behalf of the consumer um, in that area right now. I feel like the biggest bang for my buck in terms of focusing for consumers has been on the inventory crisis. So I'm sorry, I'm just not uh, probably as educated on that as I should be. So I'll give you a little, I'll give you the quick hits on it just so you know, cause I really do want to see what you think about this. So. So basically there was, there's been two class action lawsuits filed. There's a third one coming. Um, the, the plaintiffs are, you know, sellers um, that were essentially required to pay buyers agent commissions as part of the agreement for selling their home. So in order for a realtor to have access to MLS, which is your local listings 
network in that area. Um, there's a there's a code of ethics and an agreement that you sign that says if you list someone's home that you have to offer buyer's compensation as part of that. Okay. Now it's the, the limit is like $1. So it doesn't say you have to offer 3%. It doesn't say, you know, there's no requirement. It's kind of built into the, the ecosystem of buying and selling homes, but it does say you have to offer a dollar. Well, now these attorneys got a hold of this and um, Remax has settled for 55 million uh, anywhere, which used to be Rheology, which is like Caldwell Banker and you know whatever. They settled for about $85 million. Um, and NAR just this week came out and said that they were changing their policy to say, now you did not have to offer buyer compensation as part of your listing agreement to the buyer's agent. Okay, so now they're basically saying that as a seller, I do not have to pay the buyer's agent in the transaction. Well, their their argument on the consumer side is say, well, this will save consumer money because now there's more of a negotiation of commissions and um, to bring down the cost and, and it'll help consumers in the long term save money. But on the other side of it, you go, okay, well, how long does it take before it de-incentivizes de buyers agents to work with buyers. Okay. Because the whole idea of the transaction in a real estate deal is that you have an advocate for the seller and you have an advocate for the buyer. And both of those people are, are working to, to execute a contract repairs, negotiate price, um, anything that comes up throughout the transaction to make sure that it's handled correctly, legally, you know, all that kind of stuff. So everybody's protected. Well, if we go back to a market where we existed previously where we were talking about before the show started where we have 10 or 15 offers per home okay well as a listing agent if i have a if i have five buyers that are represented by buyers agents and i'm going to have to pay their commissions or i have five buyers that aren't and are coming to me directly that i no longer have to pay a seller commission on then i'm not, i'm going to take those offers because it saves my my seller money because they're not paying a commission any longer well if i'm a buyer's agent and my seller someone comes to my buyer and says hey i'll sell you this house but you got to dump your agent because it's saving too much money for my 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 my, my seller's not going to accept your offer unless you get rid of that well this is a relationship business you get referrals you're a buyer's agent you're like your your buyer comes to you and says i this is the house this is the house of my dreams this is the one i want but they're not going to sell it to me unless they don't have to pay you and I don't have enough money to pay you because I barely have enough to pay for my down payment and my closing costs as it is. And so I can't pay your commission. So what do you do as a buyer's agent? Well, that's your friend, that's your relative, whoever. Now you've shown all these houses, you've done all this work and you're like, okay, I understand, you know, I'll get the next one. Right? Well, fast forward five, six, seven years. And the next one becomes fewer and fewer and fewer. And now when someone calls you and says, Hey, I want to look for houses, can you be my buyer's agent? You're going to go, no, I just represent listings. I don't do buyers. So now what happens to the advocacy and the representation for the buyer fast forward five to 10 years when all these litigation are now saying, no, you don't have to pay the buyer's agent anymore. And then who does that ultimately benefit? Well, that's a lot. I'm going to give you kind of a, an answer, um, non-answer. Um, yeah, that's fine. I, I just wanted your opinion on it. It's, but, I mean, you don't have any information on it. So I, you know, this isn't, you know, nobody's going to hold you to a court of law on this. I just want your, your initial opinion. No, I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of a, a general statement, but it's twofold. I mean, number one is, yeah, it sounds like it's a additionally more concerted effort to take home ownership off the table and to take advocacy and responsible um, home ownership off the table. So um, that's alarming. And then number two would be, um, again, we're an ecosystem. Things are really, really screwed up. Why are we focusing on this right now? I mean, I literally, this, I've done an about face my entire career. I have been, you know, you can ask Brian View, you can ask any, anyone that you know that knew me, I was the queen of change. I mean, we're disruption, disruption, disruption. Now I've completely gone the other way. I'm like the oldest, I'm like some old man. I like, I joke with all the, with all the old men that I work with in housing finance. I'm like, I'm the oldest dude here. <laughs> I want no changes to anything right now. They're right. all like, literally like, we need to do this. We need to do it. I'm like, no, no, we don't need to do anything. I'm like, I need to be the next president of Alta because those guys know what, because Kurt Fotenhauer knows how to hold the line. I swear to God. Like, <laughs> I am like, no changes to the ecosystem right now. Things are so fragile. We have to fix the supply issues first. Yeah. Let's not do anything else. I mean it. Like that's how I feel about it right now. Yeah. That's my answer. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, it, well, and it's true. And it's, but that's the thing is there's, there's so many, there's so many things coming in so many different directions that are ultimately impacting the thing that has been in place for a hundred years plus of if you want to grow your wealth as an American citizen, the quickest and easiest way to do that as an average person is through home ownership, is through buying a house, living in that house for a period of time, picking up the equity on that home, whether it be through appreciation or through paying down the debt, which more often than not, it comes, the bulk of it comes through appreciation. And then and then selling that home and upgrading to that next level and, and, and putting more money down. So now you have less of a debt on that particular property. And now you grow an appreciation more and you do that three or four times throughout your life. Then by the time you're in your sixties or seventies or whatever age you want to call it, now there's a good chance that house is paid for and it might, this bigger house, and it might be worth five, six, $700,000. Well, that could be a good piece of your retirement that now allows you to not have to work for the rest of your life, or at least not have to work so hard. And now we are literally taking that path and we are cutting it off for already. I think right now, again, I don't know the exact number, but I want to say it's, you, you might know this. I think it's, is it like 40% or 50% of the American, it might even be 60 can't afford a basic house based on their income or what the average income is. I mean, it's, they can't afford to buy a house. There's no, there's no way around it. It's significant. Um, I, I mean, I think the the real, I, I think the real answer is that what we're doing right now isn't working, right? Yes. I yeah. mean, I, most Americans, the majority of Americans are spending better than 50% of their pre-tax dollars on housing costs right now. Yes. And, you know, our answer has been, and that, and that's, and that is in a market where we have, um, you know, a significant portion of build to rent and rent own that we haven't seen in years in years prior. So my point is, is that that is not that is not helping with affordability. That is not bringing talk about the rent to own. I want you to talk about that because you had sent me something on that before, and that that whole thing is such a well, I got a lot of opinions on that, but explain the article that you were sending over on what's happening with that and what, you know, to some degree, what kind of scam this basically is. Well, so single family rent to own has been around, you know, for a while. And just to preface, if if utilized correctly, it could be a it could be a very, very valuable program um, that could lead to sustainable, responsible home ownership. Yes. But what you have right, right. now, you, you don't have an, a representation of that in the marketplace. And, you know, Invitation Homes is easy to pick on. They're Blackstone. They're the biggest, you know, um, guys in the space. They paid six billion bucks to get into it and got a billion dollar um, interest only loan um, from Wells Fargo that was backed by Fannie Mae. So you're saying they're not intending to, to take all that money and then just help people find the dream of home ownership? Well, I think, um, I, now I don't have anything that's reportable on this, sure, but um, I, one of their former employees, one of the former Invitation Homes employees that is working for one of their competitors um, reported that um, the first year after they uh, made the purchase, they had a conversion rate of 3%. And they've only been able to elevate that another 3%. It's somewhere, hovers somewhere around 6 So 6% of the entire um, single-family residential portfolio that Blackstone holds has been- Actually converted, converted. to owner, owner, ownership. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And how does it, can you explain how the model works? Like what the, what the hook is to get you in and then what happens when you get there and then what happens on the way out? So, you know, a basic model is that as um, a prospective you know, buyer, you find a property that you would like um, to purchase and you take the property to um, that single family rent to own um, operator, you present it, they purchase the property on your behalf, much, much like a, as a cash buyer, they rent it to you and there's opportunity for you to um, work into home ownership. Right. So usually that involves some degree of um, credit counseling, and there's usually a runway associated with that because most of um, those borrowers are either ineligible um, or, um, it, you know, property. And most of those rents, from what I understand, are higher than whatever the market, the typical market rent in that area would be because of the idea of you're working towards the ownership piece. Is that right? Well, 
if you look at the article, so I referenced, um, I referenced an article, I think that was published in 2019, and there was data that accompanied that from the Urban Institute. And I think that when um, Invitation Homes first, um, when Blackstone first made, you know, the purchase, and Urban went in and took a look at the deal, um, I'm reading directly, but um, it says it found that 66.7% of the 7,000 properties in the transaction are affordable to renters earning 100% of the area median income or less, far less than the 80 to 90% for recent Fannie Mae multifamily acquisitions. So they knew at the time that this was actually less affordable and yes. that, that moving in this direction would result in less affordability. Well, you're building a rental portfolio, and this is what some of these iBuyers, the open doors of the world, have done. And it's kind of in a co you know, underlying. I don't know if I, I don't want to put intent, you know, because you never know. There's always people have good intent with things, but it just didn't work out that way where you go in and say, okay, hey, you, you individual, go find us a house that you feel like is worth it, right? Bring us the house. So you're basically telling, I mean, imagine a situation where I'm an individual and I can go find a renter ahead of time and go, Hey, renter, go find a house you want to buy. And the renter goes and finds, or go find a house you want to rent, go find a house you want to rent. Renter goes, Oh, I like this house in this neighborhood. Okay. How much you willing to, what's the, okay. Yeah. All right. I'll charge you for that. What's the cost of it? Uh, okay. I can make that math work. Yeah. Great. You're going to be the renter. What did I have to do? I'd have to do anything. All I had to do was come up with the money to buy the property. So the person could rent. I didn't have to find the renter. I didn't have to go through the process of looking for the property. They handled all that for me. They did it on their own. Then they bring me the house and now I've told them you add the extra layer of, Hey, Oh, by the way, if you do this, this, and this, you can own this house in three years or five years. Now we're going to sell it to you higher every year that you can't, we're going to make the price go up because the market appreciates. And even though your income isn't keeping up with it, which is a whole other thing, um, even though your income isn't keeping pace with the inflation of the house prices, um, we're still going to offer the ability for you to buy it if you want to. Oh, darn, you can't. And oh, darn, the rent went up and now you can't afford to rent it anymore. Well, I guess you're going to have to go find another place to live. And oh, by the way, now I have a rental house in my portfolio that has been earning cash flow for me for years at a higher percentage with a higher appreciated value that I can now stick another renter in there and build my portfolio of rental properties that I can now turn around and sell as investments to big companies. So, I mean, it's, it's, uh, from a business point of view, if you just want to examine it from, I'm a businessman running a company, trying to earn profit. It's freaking brilliant. It's brilliant. A hundred percent. That's the, the conversation we were having earlier. That's why I was like, of course there's, there's that kind of pressure it would be, yeah. um, it's you hard. have to have rules in place to prevent hard. that kind of stuff. You know, well, and then the secondary to that, there's another model that is the build to rent model. So um, a lot of the multifamily larger projects are are being built to rent. So oh, yeah, you have a pool of available properties, and they say, you know, versus you go out and find your own, self-select your own property. We have these properties available for you, and you can, you know, rent to own one of these. Now there are operators out there that have higher conversion rates. Just to be clear, sure. yes. um, you know, and like I said, invitation conversion rate be like sixty or seventy percent. <laughs> you know I mean, isn't that the idea? You know, maybe. I mean, honestly, let's let's be fair because I like you know I'm I'm trying to deliver a fair and you know kind of balanced view yeah. from my perspective. I'm not. I mean, maybe not in this environment. I mean, rates are like crazy. You know, maybe not in this environment. Maybe that's not a reasonable expectation. But to your point, in a normalized environment, yeah, I would expect that we're going to be somewhere closer to in line with the national average if these guys are doing what they are supposed to be doing and say they're doing. Well, I know we've we've given a lot of bad <laughs> bad news or bad situations, but what I want to know is so as an average consumer or an, a realtor in in a particular market, what would you advise people to do to start helping turn the tide of this stuff? What kind of what kind of advocacy can they do? What kind of you know organizations can they get involved with? Because the thing I, I again, it's the forest through the trees type of deal or it's the it's the frog in the boiling water, you know, situation where 
this stuff is happening, but we all exist in our own little bubbles in our own little world. And while well, I closed this transaction and I got this buyer help and yeah, my transactions are slowing, but I'm still doing deals and we're not looking at the long term because very few people have time to do it because we're running, living our lives. But we're, if we're going to look up one day and the idea of a real estate agent and the idea of a mortgage broker and the idea of, you know, single family home ownership is going to be so minimal because it's just been this slow burn that's happened over the last you know, 15 or 20 years, we've seen it accelerated the last three or four years, but it's going to be this slow burn that continues. So how can we keep agents and buyers and sellers and, and just the average person on track to know, Hey, look, this is important. You need to pay attention to this because it's going to affect you and your children and your grandchildren in the future. You know, I don't think there's an, a, a silver bullet. And I think that's what we're always looking for in housing. And yeah. We truly, I do. And that's one of the reasons why I, you know, wanted to, to share today this notion of the fact that we're an ecosystem and that we are interdependent and that we are partners and that it is a, a bigger place. Because to answer your question, what I think the real answer is, is that home ownership is always going to be important and it's always going to be important to this country. Yeah, it is foundationally important to the economics and um, the socioeconomics of this country. That much is not going away. What I do think um, the opportunity and the challenges is that we've been spoiled by these incredibly low rates and this environment for a very, very long time. And um, I think not all of us, I think, you know, but some of us, present company included, maybe in the past have been um, lazy sellers. Right. We've just the business has come a little bit too easily. And um, I think now um, we need to switch gears. And I think the answer is right here. What you're doing is we need to do business differently. We need to understand that business is probably going to be in our pipeline for a lot longer. Um, we are going to need to, to educate or, um, you know, expose oh, our borrowers. Yeah. We're going to have to work with them longer. We're going to have to be more compassionate. We're going to have to deliver more grace to them and ourselves. And we're going to have to learn to use um, media to, to, you know, and and use the tool set that's available to us. Like it's it's changing. The face of this industry is changing, but the opportunity is still there. Yeah. Do you think there are things that on a, on a governmental level or, or, or organizational level, like with advocacy groups, like you guys have, are there, are there organizations that, that agents or buyers or sellers can get involved with, or, or just, you know, help out to that are, that are fighting these fights? Because that's, I think that's the thing that gets lost a little bit is it's not that there aren't people that are passionate about trying to fix this problem. It's that the vast majority of the money and the, and the, uh, power, I guess you could call it behind the other side of the fence is so heavy and so outweighs the ones that, because I think there's more people that want to fix the problem, but there's a lot less money and attention on it because there's so much power and influence on the other side. Is there something that the, that you would recommend to buyers, sellers, realtors to, to get involved or, or at least try to draw more attention to the subject? You know, I, what I would say is, um, don't lose your voice. Don't lose your voice just because you think no one is listening. Don't, you know, don't stay silent. Yeah. Um, you can, we can't rely on everyone else to fix the problems. Again, you know, going back to, I think, you know, for the last 20 years, we've always just been like, oh, well, supplies down. We'll just call up construction and labor and be like, hey, we need some supply over yeah. here. We were choking. Like, come on, get with it. You know, but never really considering like, wow, do they have challenges? Do they have interdependencies? We're all like kind of joined at the hip. We haven't been, but I think moving forward over the next couple of decades, we're going to have to be, if yeah. we're going to make this work. So what I would say is talk to people, talk to the guys in construction, talk to the labor unions, join America's homeowner Alliance. It's free. We don't, we don't charge for the memberships. Just because you're a member of NAR doesn't mean you shouldn't be America, a member of America's Homeowner Alliance. You're also a consumer in addition to being a realtor or you know a member of housing finance. Yeah. Well, and you're an advocate for your buyers and sellers. So you you want to be an advocate, a part of groups that are advocating for them as well, because you're, you're we're all fighting the same fight. It's, you know, there's not, uh, like you said, the ecosystem is, is we're all together. You know, there isn't one group that pulls or, or makes greater impact than the other. We all have to do it as one. Yeah. And, and 
And I think one of the things that I would urge people to really resist, and and we have to remind ourselves of this daily at America's Homeowner Alliance, especially me, just full disclosure, you know, don't, don't allow this environment to cause any more divisiveness in the ecosystem. We need each other. That's what I've been trying to point out. We need labor. We need construction. We need policy. We, you know, we need lawmakers. We, we need the guys in MI. We need title. We, we need, it's all hands on deck in this industry. Let's try to refrain from being divisive and throwing, you know, and, and throwing blame and pointing fingers. Like we need to come together in a coalition and we need to figure out how we're going to get in front of this and fix this for the country. It's serious. It's a very serious problem. Yes, it is. Well, I wore my Batman shirt today because I was talking to a superhero out there uh, fighting the fight as a vigilante, you know, battling against all the big guys. So I, I, this is my homage to you for today. But um, <laughs> I really, really appreciate you coming on, Michelle. Um, we're, we're over an hour right now. And, you know, I, I, I want to be respectful of your time. So um, I really appreciate you uh, hopping on and chatting about this. And um, I expect that we'll probably have some more conversations in the future about this because I just I don't think this problem is going away anytime soon but I do think that we need more people like you on the front lines that are you know pushing back against this because all of us that are working in the industry on a day-to-day -day basis we're busy trying to do loans trying to sell homes and you know living our lives and you know knowing that there's people out there that are focused on this issue and trying to help solve the problem, you know, makes me sleep better at night. It doesn't, it's not going to fix it overnight, but the more people that we draw attention to and the more people that get out there and, um, you know, fight against this, this change that's being torn away from us at every second that we breathe here. Um, you know, I really appreciate everything that you're doing. I appreciate everything that the advocacy group is doing. And I just hope that you guys keep getting support, keep getting, you know, that's why I brought you on here. Cause I wanted to, uh, you know, help spread your message as much as I can to my tens and tens of people. Um, just so we can make sure that this doesn't go away and it doesn't fall out of the, out of the spotlight. So thank you so much for coming on and anything else you want to leave us with before we go? No, just thank you so much for your time. Yes, my pleasure. Well, um, I appreciate everybody that stuck around. Uh, check this out if you want to get a full uh, breakdown of this on Spotify and Apple next week because I think this is an important conversation. And share this with your friends. Share this with realtors. Share this with home buyers because the more people are aware of this and the more people that spend time focusing on this, the better and more likely are to solve the problem because there's, there's tons of us. There's millions of people that want to fix this problem. There's only a few people that don't. We just have to work against them you know, with our numbers. So thank you, Michelle. Thanks for everybody that stuck around and we will see you next week.